Welcome to episode 45 of the PharmExec podcast. I'm Kristen Harm, associate editor of PharmExec magazine and our podcast host. PharmExec magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. On this week's episode, editorial director Lisa Henderson is speaking with William Lewis. William is the chairman and CEO of InsMed. He talks about the approval of the company's drug Aircase through the FDA's limited population pathway for antibacterial and antifungal drugs, a couple of ideas that he spoke about on the recent Nord panel about innovative and ethical partnerships, and then he also talks about InsMed's pipeline and progress. So let's take a quick minute to hear a word from our sponsor, Fingerpaint, and then we can return with Will's interview. What's the color of commitment? What's the color of success or engagement? These aren't your everyday questions. But at Fingerpaint, we ask them because we've found that once you open your eyes to new approaches, new colors, you see a whole new world of possibilities. Fingerpaint, never paint by number. This is Lisa Henderson. I'm Editorial Director for Pharmaceutical Executive, and we're here today with Will Lewis, Chairman and CEO of InsMed. So hi, Will. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Good. So could you tell our audience a little bit more about your company? You bet. So InsMed is a company that is focused on transforming the lives of patients battling serious rare diseases. And what we include under that sort of overarching mission are uh, patient populations that have limited or no treatment options. And this is probably best uh, evidenced by our lead program for a drug that was recently conditionally approved for the treatment of serious uh, refractory non-tuberculous mycobacteria lung disease, which is a, a rare and, and um, probably not well-known disease but one for which we have now secured the first ever uh, conditionally approved product for, for use. So that mission powers everything we do. And this first approved drug is the specific example of uh, our ability to see it through to completion. Great. So we understand that that was uh, that you, you have a conditional approval through the FDA's limited population pathway for antibacterial and antifungal drugs, which has the acronym of LPAD. So could you explain that a little bit more around the ERA case? You bet. Uh, ERA case was approved. Actually, if we, if we step back a second and think about our path to approval, it included every FTA regulatory designation they had available. So this includes orphan designation, priority review, a breakthrough therapy designation, um, but the one you specifically referred to is one of two that came from a series of recent legislative initiatives from uh, Congress, the first being um, the Generating Antibiotic Incentives Now, or GAIN Act, which created a, a designation called Qualified Infectious Disease Product, or QIDP designation. Uh, and then more recently, the 21st Century Cures Act which established the one you just mentioned, the limited population pathway for antibacterial and antifungal drugs or LPAD uh, designation. And we were able to secure all of these designations 
as we brought um, Aircase through its its regulatory journey through um, what was subpart H approval uh, to its its current position now as as the first ever approved therapy to treat this refractory lung condition called uh, NTM. So when did it receive those designations? So the designations came at different times on its regulatory journey. Mm-hmm. The the LPAD designation came just before, or really uh, commensurate with its approval, um, which was a little unusual. But then it's important to understand that we were the first ever uh, drug to receive this designation at at uh, the time of approval. So we are really the test case uh, for the use of the LPAD designation. Excellent. So. Um, you recently joined a panel at NORD uh, Summit. So the National Organization of Rare Diseases has their summit every year. And you, the panel was to discuss ideas on ways to achieve innovative and ethical partnerships between organizations and their patients. And we know that patient advocacy is um, very important to company, uh, yeah, companies, especially in the in the rare disease space, as they you know move move forward closer to patients, which pharma historically hasn't been so close with their patients. But could you share what you spoke about on that panel? We started out with just an overview of relationships between companies and patient advocacy groups, and it's important to think about rare disease is kind of a unique uh, area within the pharmaceutical industry patients ecosystem. And what I mean by that is there are probably six or 7,000 rare diseases, and there are only about a thousand drugs approved to treat those six or 7,000 diseases. So there are a vast majority of the rare diseases out there do not today have a currently approved therapy um, to treat them. So you see a spectrum as a result of patient advocacy groups at different levels of development, depending on how involved industry has been. And so the first point of orientation is where is the disease and where are the patient advocacy groups in terms of available therapy? And ours sort of stands out as uh, a recent example of success where there was a patient advocacy group in place to try to encourage industry to step in and take on the challenge of developing a drug for approval in this um, you know, heretofore sort of ignored space of very serious disease. And we were able to reach out and partner with them successfully in, in, uh, in a number of ways. And, and we can go into what each of those were, but I think in that way, we're sort of a, a kind of a, a success story in how patient advocacy groups and industry can uh, lock arms toward the goal of bringing therapies forward. So the panel itself, and as you said, you were level setting, I guess, for the audience where different companies are in regard to um, and alongside the patient advocacy groups. Is that? Yeah. And I think, you know, specifically where we were when we were asked, you know, how did we work successfully with patient groups? There, there was a patient group in our case, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps to make a, a, the, the point more magnified. If you think about one of the other people that were all, that was on the panel, this was a representative of the pulmonary arterial hypertension um, uh, advocacy group, and that's a disease state which, while rare, has 14 drugs already approved to treat that condition. So mm-hmm. we sit on the one end of the spectrum where there's very little industry involvement and development, and that gentleman sat on the other end of the spectrum where not only are there a number of drugs, but some of those drugs are becoming generic. And so there's a different set of challenges and, and needs for each of those interactions. In his case, he's 
much more focused on being as neutral as he can with all of the interactions. And in our case, we're sort of the only uh, group uh, so far that has come forward with a, a therapy. Mm-hmm. So uh, in that way, we've, we've been able to, to make a lot of headway very quickly in, in helping patients with disease education and, and that sort of thing. And this parallels the efforts of the patient advocacy group. So there's some logical bridges that, that build there early. And as a result, I think, you know, the patients are, are all the better off. It's a fascinating time for rare disease generally because these patient advocacy groups through the use of the internet are able to put significant and meaningful information in global circulation about diseases that, you know, otherwise would make a patient feel incredibly isolated. You're one of a rare handful of patients that has a disease no one has ever heard of and probably you can barely pronounce And yet the first thing you do today is you go type that into Google and it would immediately populate a patient advocacy group that you would link to and it would provide you information about the disease, clinical trials that are underway perhaps, and perhaps the most important element, other people who have the disease. So you can begin to understand that you're not alone and that there are resources and other people out there with whom you can connect. So you make a really good point about the usage of the internet. And I wanted to ask you about in this specific disease state, is it hard to identify patients suffering from the disease? Are there challenges as the drugs then launch with physician education or finding the right patients or anything like that? One of the biggest challenges for all rare diseases is what they call patient finding. And that, and that is you now finally have traveled the long journey and invested all the resources necessary to gain approval of a therapy, now how do you go out and find the patients who will benefit from that therapy, the appropriate on-label patient? And, and there are a lot of ways to do that. Um, patients are proactively looking uh, all the time, and, and the internet can create a, a connection point for that interest um, because those patients can then find physicians who treat the disease or know about it and reach out to them, and then that physician can direct their, the appropriate therapy for them. But for us, I think, you know, the way we've tried to enhance our patient um, finding efforts is to use some of the more cutting edge tools and techniques that are out there. And one of these is, is a kind of machine learning. So um, because of the availability of, of so-called big data, that is um, information about patients that's blinded. You don't obviously know the patient's name or any of the, the salient details, but you know that they have um, they are a patient who has received treatment for NTM. And with that database of information comes a whole host of associated characteristics of the patient. Again, you, it's, non, it's depersonalized, but I can understand that there is a patient with NTM who has certain characteristics, age, gender, uh, weight, those sorts of things, and then many more specific medical uh, conditions. And what you can do is essentially go in um, and harvest that information in a way that creates a typical patient profile. And with that typical patient profile, then run that uh, profile against all other uh, databases of of patient information and see, are there patients out there today who have the disease and are probably not getting treated or have not been in touch with a physician? And while we wouldn't reach out to those patients, we know uh, generally where they are in the country and we can reach out to the physicians with disease education and awareness so that what we call the index of suspicion is raised by the physician who might not otherwise think of these rare diseases when their patient comes in with these 
um, confounding symptoms. Because one of the biggest challenges in rare disease is patients have these incredibly painful, long journeys yeah. of uh, uh, time to diagnosis. And so it's, it's a long uh, explanation for how you gain access to information, utilize the information, educate physicians, and ultimately help the patient benefit by gaining access to therapy. That's fascinating that you can use that machine learning in that way and help the physicians find those patients that, you know, can benefit, you know. It's an incredibly promising and humanistic side of this uh, otherwise a depersonalized big data discussion that you hear in the media all the time. This is really taking the uh, sick patient and putting them in touch with the most skilled doctor in the shortest period of time. And that's going to change people's lives. So as you said, you know, you have to go to the physician, you have the de-identified data, uh, you can't actually identify the patient, but I guess that gets into switching back to the panel discussion, the ethics around organizations and their patients and that kind of thing. So what were some of the audience thoughts um, or questions to, to the panel? What were they most interested in? Well, you know, it's interesting. One of the, the things that I always reflect on the most is that there is a very intense commitment on the part of um, industry players. And I would say this is the vast majority of industry players. We're all aware that there are, there are those in every industry that don't perhaps um, act as, as we would like them to, but mm-hmm. the vast majority of people are intensely motivated to help these patients. And, and certainly incident falls into that category. And it's something that I'm personally committed to. And, and I think we all have personal health stories that help remind us that um, these benefits that we're trying to provide may ultimately be for us or someone close to us. And that makes it very real. So when we talk about the ethics and the morality of how we approach patient interaction, you start with the first you know, person perspective that says, how would I want to be treated? How would I expect industry to behave? And then, of course, there are the regula- regulations that surround that that ensure uh, what I would call best practices. But the first instance and the first mission is to try to help patients get information, get access to expert physicians, um, provide education, and ultimately, hopefully, provide uh, therapies to the physician that they can then select for the appropriate patient uh, out of their toolkit. Excellent. So can you elaborate on your company's pipeline and the progress? Sure. So as I said before, we're focused on helping patients who face serious and rare diseases. And in the first instance, we've focused on this disease called uh, pulmonary non-tuberculous mycobacteria. And even within that, we've uh, tried to target the patients who have failed all other prior therapies. So these are patients who've come in on a cocktail of background therapies that uh, are not approved for the treatment of this disease, but which physicians have cobbled together in an attempt to try to help them. And to that, we, we have been able to secure the uh, conditional approval for Ericase to treat uh, patients with refractory MAC lung disease. That's the sort of generalized label that, I would, that, uh, that we can address. And that is um, a, a really exciting and important um, advance for these patients. And it, that profile of patient, the one that has nothing else to turn to and the disease state that has nothing else approved, that's, that's something where we think um, we're going to continue to keep our focus. And the reason for that is pretty simple. We want to have impact on patients and their lives. And we know that if we go into those places 
and we can bring a therapy there that by definition, we are doing that. And that's what gets us out of bed every day. And when I think about the, the opportunity beyond refractory MAC NTM, there are other types of patients with NTM who have nothing approved. We intend to go after them and, and using our current drug, we think there's a pretty good chance we should be able to do that. We've got to do the clinical trial work to demonstrate that it's safe and effective in those populations. But that's our, that's our first plan is to go there um, to those adjacent populations where we think um, this can be a benefit. And we plan to do that globally. So we've opened offices in Europe and in Japan. We filed for approval in Europe. We will be filing for approval in Japan in the first half of next year. Um, and so that's sort of the story behind our lead program. In our pipeline behind that lead program, we have another very interesting molecule that we call INS1007. Uh, and this program is uh, called a, a DPP-1 inhibitor. And basically, we are targeting it to go after another a serious pulmonary condition called non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis. Mm. This is an, another disease where there is nothing approved to treat the condition. Um, it's a little more prevalent than NTM, but still uh, fairly uh, rare. And we're super excited about phase two data that will read out in the first quarter of next year uh, for this molecule. And if, if that comes forward, it will be uh, a really great day for people with non-CF bronchiectasis because that would represent um, the first promising advance against that disease in, in some time. So and we have others behind that. I should just mention, oh, sorry, you know, no. there, there are also programs in uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension. We have a program called INS1009 that we think uh, can not only provide a, an additional therapy in that space, but one which will help um, to make real advances in the way that the underlying drug is used such that uh, many more patients would, would benefit from it because we think that this drug uh, will have what they call a localized effect inside the lung for patients with this you know, deadly disease. Uh, behind that, we have some novel um, other development programs and research programs that look at um, treating rare infections in the lung like MRSA in cystic mm -hmm. fibrosis mm -hmm. patients. We have a, a very advanced but early program looking at biofilm targeting, which is a, um, another problem that is associated with uh, surgical procedures. So we, we're, we've got quite a long line of very innovative research going on that we think is going to, in each in every case, make a big difference in patients' lives. It's amazing the pace of innovation, right? I was just, I wrote a article, I got my editor's letter about that for November, just the amazing pace of how quick our science is evolving is just astounding. It's hard to keep up with. Well, I think it, it is for everybody, including, quite frankly, the scientists, because mm -hmm. the, we're in an interesting time where the, you know, if we just focus on something like the cellular therapies that are out there, um, these are transformational at the root cause of disease. These are, these are treatments that can go in and alter at the genetic level using the cellular architecture, what is happening in the body. And so uh, minor defects that can have major uh, health negative events can potentially be corrected. And, you know, at the scientific level, that rate of change is so advanced and so dramatic, as you say, it's hard to keep up with. But then once you've achieved that, it raises all kinds of interesting additional challenges, challenges that people don't typically think about, like manufacturing, mm 
mm-hmm. or the ability to um, take that novel piece of science, how do you deliver it effectively inside the body? And, you know, this is something where we've been involved because uh, our liposomal uh, technology, what we call Pomavance, does enable uh, us to put other payloads inside that uh, liposomal encapsulation and uh, potentially enhance delivery to certain tissues and locations in the body. That's what the biofilm targeting is all about, taking advantage of that. And you may see the same thing in in more uh, interesting cellular therapy areas like mRNA or uh, gene therapy. So you make a really good point about that manufacturing aspect then, because you can't uncouple the two, right? You can't uh, it's the manufacturing and the therapy that go together. You know, that whole, it has to go together. It's not just separate. How well, you know, and it ties to a, to a broader issue, right? Because this is the only industry uh, that I'm aware of where you have to create um, large scale and redundant manufacturing capability to serve needs around the world before you know if the product is even ever going to be approved. Yeah, <laughs> so it takes quite a bit of investment yeah. and a, quite a bit of faith. And, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of resources get poured into creating that scaled manufacturing base, once again, before you even know if the product will ever be approved. And we know that the, the approval rate for, for pharmaceutical mm-hmm. compounds is incredibly low. Uh, and that adds to, to one of the bigger challenges, because as the science gets even more advanced, that manufacturing becomes even more complicated and more difficult to do. Uh, in a reliable and repetitive way at scale. And of course, all that investment has to be made and, and has to be qualified and, and uh, the regulators have to sign off on it, as I say, right at the time that you're planning on launching, which makes it a very challenging proposition. I think we're probably gonna be talking more about that manu- that issue, the manufacturing and the complexity around that. That'll be quite the topic for the next, for, the, for a few years, I'm sure. Well, and, and you, we're, we're hearing about it, not just from the manufacturing point of view, but also mm-hmm. from the delivery point of view. So if you can, in a Petri dish or in a, in a, a mouse model, take a small quantity of this new technology, a viral vector to adjust the genetic code inside an animal and successfully do that and, and repeat that several times. Now imagine that you have to scale the manufacturing so that that can be done reliably, repeatedly over many years uh, without risk of variation. Yeah. And that really hasn't been conquered yet. And, and if you can do that, then you're put in the position where they say, okay, how effectively are you delivering it to the tissue in the body? Because all of this, of course, is very expensive. And, yeah. and here again, our, our technology, I think, can be helpful there. And we've, we've consulted with some folks on that very point. But it, all it really does is serve to, to highlight that there's still a lot to be done around these exciting technologies to make them ready for prime time at larger scales around the world. Definitely, I appreciate your points of view on that and your insights for sure. Um, usually, you know, we ask our podcast interviewee subjects, we ask you about your, um, your, your leadership. Like what do you, um, your company's growing, it's growing quickly. You've just said you're expanding. So how do you, how do you get the best team together? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I think it's one that I um, am constantly wrestling with. You know, my, I have a couple of things about um, the way I approach the construction of the, of the business. And, and the first is that I sort of remind everybody that's coming on board 
uh, that from my point of view, it, and it's the only corporate quote you'll ever see anywhere on uh, my desk or on my wall. It's very simple. It says there is no finish line. And what I mean by that is there are patients out there, as I mentioned at the start of this, that have literally thousands of unanswered diseases for which there is nothing approved. So once we are successful, as we have been fortunate enough to be with the launch of Aracase in the refractory MAC NTM market, um, we will pivot to the next disease and the next disease and the next disease and keep going down that path. And I really am looking for people who want to come on board to accomplish that objective. It is uh, enormous. And so we take it one step at a time. But there's a mindset that uh, informs people who want to come on board to build toward that objective uh, repeatedly that is different from perhaps somebody who is, is looking for, you know, uh, an interesting but, but more uh, shorter term opportunity. And so that's, that's one of the first things I look for in everybody is, are they on board with the concept that there is no finish line? And fortunately, to date, in my senior leadership team, I've been incredibly lucky to have what I consider to be some of the best people I've ever been able to work with in any career um, who are so motivated and, uh, and, and, you know, quite, quite humble about it, I would say. Excellent. Well, thank you, Will. Thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. You bet. It's been my pleasure. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on at the moment and uh, Insmed's, you know, happy to be a part, a small part of it, but, uh, but I'm sure there are many companies you could be talking to right now who have exciting therapies that are gonna change patients' lives. So we're grateful to be included on that list. Finger paint, never paint by number. Find us online at fingerpaint.com. And now it's time for this week's leadership tips from pharma execs. This is Will Lewis, Chairman and CEO of Insumed, and my leadership tip is hire the very best team you can and ask them, how can I help? Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's PharmaZec podcast sponsored by FingerPaint. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the PharmaZec staff is working on. Remember, you can always find us on the web at PharmaZec.com, on Twitter at PharmaZec, on Instagram at PharmaExecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of PharmaZec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email Editorial Director Lisa Henderson at lhenderson at mmhgroup.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mmhgroup.com.